Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about design education and practice. Today on the show, I am joined by the designer, writer, and educator, Eric Hyman. Eric is principal of Volume, the San Francisco-based design studio he co-founded in 2001, and he has also been teaching at the California College of Art since 1999 and has written for publications like I, Immigre, and Design Observer. I've known Eric for a, a long time and have been a fan of his work for years, and something that's always been interesting to me about him and about Volume is how they've sort of resisted the Silicon Valley tech world that oftentimes feels like it has completely subsumed the design world in San Francisco and, and the Bay Area. There's a group of small design studios out there who have really held tight to the work that they are interested in and, and have carved out a unique space for themselves. And Volume is one of those. So in this conversation, which we recorded back in April, I asked him about that. I asked him what it was like to be in design school in the Bay Area during the dot-com bubble and the height of immigre to be kind of right where all of that was happening and then what it's like now in the middle of another tech boom we also talk about writing and teaching and how those influence his practice and especially the gaps that he sees between design education and design practice i think there's a lot in here for practitioners who also teach uh, and kind of how to think of think about both sides of that as well as for students who are thinking about their time in school, and their future careers. Remember that Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter written by me, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. If you like Scratching the Surface and want to see it continue, please be please consider becoming a supporting member. It truly means so much to me. For all the details, you can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is my conversation with Eric Hyman. You were at CCA as a student in the 90s. Uh, mm -hmm. mid nineties or so you started teaching in 99 mm -hmm. and then volume started volume in 2001. Mm -hmm. And as I was thinking about it, that is a, that like late nineties, early two thousands is an interesting era, both for graphic design, but also for San Francisco, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, in, um, Emigre was happening. There was like really interesting kind of writing, you know, right down the road, you know, basically across the, across the bay from you. There was the, the uh, kind of first dot com bubble. San Francisco was changing. Where were you in that moment? Obviously, as a student and then kind of transitioning into into a professional. Uh, what was that like to be in San Francisco at that time? Well, it yeah, it was when I was a student, it felt like it was sort of the tail end of that sort of what I would call postmodern explosion. Um, I remember in school, like my typography teacher, Leslie Becker, going, you need to subscribe to Emigre magazine. You all should check out this magazine, Ray Gun, that had just uh -huh. sort of started. And, um, and it was very exciting, I think, because the profession as a whole at that time was in this self-analysis questioning mode. I think the reason magazines like Emigre and I were very mm -hmm. fertile then is because the profession as a whole, I think partially due to technology, but also just other factors too, was in this, you know, you know, what is legibility? What is design? Where can we slot it? Are we artists? Are we designers? And so, right. It was a really exciting time in that respect. And, and as someone, I think, who relished this idea of design as this um, practice and device in which to not just like solve problems, but actually question things and interrogate things was was really exciting. Um, and because we had this really interesting mix of instructors um, from all different kind of parts of that explosion um 
it made for a really interesting dialogue. I, I think what was also special about CCA then is that um, it was mostly instructors who were also full-on practitioners too. And so we were getting this very interesting mix of instructors who really wanted to push the envelope, but then were also doing it for real, some of them in very traditional um, mm, commercial mm-hmm. practices like, you know, the Michaels were all still teaching when I was there, mm. but people mm-hmm. like Lucille Tanasis and Martin Vineski yep. were starting to teach there. And so it was, it was very fertile, um, time. Um, and then once I got out of school, the economy was starting to crest based on this, on this tech thing that was really starting to, you know, explode in San Francisco. And so, um, I personally did not have a lot of interest in that at the time. I went to go work <laughs> okay. for a studio that was a more traditional uh, studio. It was called Zimmerman Crow Design, which is now Vehicle. And, you know, we hmm. did a lot of, you know, the sort of stuff that design firms did then, which was everything from, I don't know, working for companies like Levi's, which is in San Francisco, to <laughs> doing annual reports, to... um trying to remember some of the stuff we were doing back then. I mean, I think what was really great about California that felt very different to me coming from Pennsylvania and coming out of architecture school in Pittsburgh um, was there was this sense that design could be expressive and could really jump fences in terms of where it could slot in. You know, a lot of these people like Michael Vanderbile and Michael Mamrymer were doing like trade shows and monuments and fashion labels and and things like that and and then with the combination of the technology thing coming in it just it felt very just the energy level was high you know I, I've always sort of relished that about this place and that that you could come here and reinvent yourself and there weren't as many sort of rules mm. of how you practiced or rules of taste or whatever, you know, the, the rules were, it just felt a lot more free to, in terms of reinvention, which is what I was trying yeah. to do by going to school at CCA and, and coming out to California in the first place. Can, can you, so I, I have two questions kind of uh, in that. And one of them will, will kind of keep this thread of the other ones, you know, kind of jumping farther into the into the future can you talk more about that reinvention you you studied architecture at Carnegie Mellon uh and then did you immediately move to San Francisco after you finished architecture school um more or less I I spent the summer working for a small architecture firm that I had been working for for about a year at the time but I mean it wasn't necessarily the plan to go to California um as it was just to sort of figure out the next step. I think that (laughs) part of, I mean, I I loved my architecture education and it gave me so much um, in terms of rigor and this sort of being able to look at things systematically and holistically, Mm -hmm. looking at things more experientially as opposed to just visually. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, all those people in my class are still, you know, really, a lot of them are still really my best friends in the world. So I, I don't have any ill will towards my architecture education. It was really fantastic. But I think as it moved along a little bit further, I began to realize that I had much more um, broad interests um, Mm -hmm. that were always Mm -hmm. hard to kind of wedge into the architecture practice. Um, And I I think, you know, I was a, I was a DJ in college. Um, you know, I was very into, I took a lot of humanities classes. I was very much into literature and, and, and the humanities sides of things. And it just felt like my architecture teachers were always like, it was architecture and nothing else. And, um, and, you know, I think it takes a lot of moxie and work and concentration to be an architect. And so I don't begrudge them for, for pushing me that way, but I just felt like that wasn't my personality. You know, there was also sort of a cocksuredness about being an architect too that I don't think I had, especially then, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. so I think what happened was um, I remember I got a job uh, 
with a family friend's firm in Minneapolis. And it was really a recession at the time. And so I was lucky to get it. And I remember I got out of the interview and I was walking through the streets of Minneapolis and going like, if I take this job, this is the end of my life. Like this is, this is just, this is so wrong. Um, and I tell students this a lot. I'm like, look, part of it is really trusting your gut. Even if you're young, it's, it's, it's really sort of thinking about, cause that first move that you make, especially out of school is a big one. And so I, I actually ended up turning the job down, staying in Pittsburgh, making some money. And then me and a friend kind of hatched this idea that we would just take two months to see every state in the lower 48 just drive around nice. and and then one of my classmates had already moved to Californians and, and you know this was before cell phones and email and I was at a mutual friends and he said um hey is Eric there um I want to know if he's interested in signing a lease with me in Oakland um <laughs> and uh it's it was pretty by chance you know I just went out there and then you know, it was, you couldn't get any architecture work and it was really hard. And I was competing with these two friends of mine who I was living with, um, at the time for architecture jobs. And I just kind of saw it as an excuse to sort of maybe try to reinvent the, the narrative, re reorient the narrative of where I wanted to go. And so, you know, I ended up working in a cafe as a bike messenger. I worked at a record store for six months. I went and lived with my uncle and Maui for three months and worked with children <laughs> okay. with physical and mental. I mean, I, it was really sort of a, a walkabout of sorts. And you could do that at the time because the Bay Area was cheap. Um, you know, you could you could sort of tread water a little bit. And, and in the middle of all that, um, you know, I, I kind of had the sense that I wanted to do graphic design. The story's getting too long. You can edit this part out too. Um, uh <laughs> Because it, it's hard to tell in a linear fashion. My last semester of architecture school, I also took this class called Building a Journal, which was about creating an architectural journal for the school because all the Ivy League schools mm. had one and we right, didn't. Right. And okay. somehow I got tasked on the team with trying to figure out how to design it. And so I remember I went mm. down I went down to the graphic design people that I knew their, their studios. And I said, Hey, I have, I have to figure out how to do this. Can somebody help me put me on the right track? And so I ended up camping out in their studios for like a month and just putting this, this journal together, like half, like digitally half old school way. It was sort of the early nineties. So we're in the middle of that. And, and, um, and at the end of it, I'm like, this is what I should be doing. You know, this is really fun. This is the first time I felt like, Whoa, this is, this feels like where I should be. So, you know, but I was literally oh, two weeks away from graduation right. when we did this. So, you know, I, I think I feel bad for students now because I feel that there's just a lot more economic and competitive pressure and that ability yeah. to, to just kind of stop and really take stock of where you want to be and what you want to do is so much more of a luxury. And I, I was just really lucky that I had that opportunity. And so during that year I was in San Francisco, I literally went to a show at SF MoMA. I just stopped into SF MoMA and there was a show mm -hmm. about four graphic designers in the Bay area. It oh, was, interesting. It was Michael Mannering, Michael Vanderbilt, Michael Cronin, and this guy, Jerry Reese. And I looked at the stuff and I was like, Oh my God, this is so cool. Like, this is what I want to do. And I saw that they all taught at CCAC. It was called at the time. And, and so I learned that CCA was literally, like down the street from where I was living at the time in Oakland. And I walked in and I said, you know, I really want to do graphic design. I'm this 24 year old architecture grad. I don't know if you have a place uh -huh, for me because uh -huh. they didn't have a grad program then. And, and they're like, oh, well, you'd actually be one of the younger students in our graphic design program. It's a big second degree program. And, you know, you would fit right in. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe I'll try a semester, take out some loans and see and see um, what happens. That's and amazing. that first semester was like, oh my God, like I have found myself. And literally Jared, since those that moment, it's just been this slow trajectory. And I think that another thing I tell students a lot is like really say yes to things, you know, when you're young. Right. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. and uh, because I, you never know where it might take you. And I think that I don't see myself as this super adventurous person necessarily, but um, at the time it just felt like, you know, I need to be adventurous now or I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. And I was just really lucky that 
these these certain points connected, these dots connected, because if they hadn't, I don't know where I would be right now. Do you have a sense of what it was about graphic design that gave you that feeling? Even when you were working on that, the architecture journal, we were like, oh, this is the thing that I was supposed to do. And then when you get into that semester at CCA and you're like, you have found your people, you have found kind of the thing you're supposed to do. Uh, what was it about design that that did that for you? Do, you? do you know? Um, well, I think there was a few things. I think one was that graphic design. I mean, you have to remember that like when I was growing up in a small town in Pennsylvania, I, I didn't even know what graphic design was. You know, I didn't yeah, know it existed yeah. um, as, a, as, a, as a job or even a term. I mean, obviously right. I knew things were designed, but or I could, mm -hmm. you know, but it never occurred to me that somebody actually did that for a profession. Um, and I think when I began to realize what it was, I was at Carnegie Mellon as someone who was really into, you know, music and music packaging and, you know, books yeah. and things like that. I began to realize like, oh, like I want to do something that feeds into things that in film and things like that. I want right, to, right. I want to do things that are more directly linked to that. Um, I also, I think I like the immediacy of design. Um, you know, architecture is often this really long haul with a lot of, um, you know, we work with a lot of architects now on these jobs and it's, you know, it's these jobs are sometimes like four or five years long. And there was something really nice about being able to create something more quickly and you could, the immediate gratification of seeing it, you know, in front of you, even though. Mm -hmm. um back then the, the processes weren't as as quick as they are now um and then i also think too for me graphic design has always been about typography and the written word um mm. and and i've always been you know reading has always been this and books have always been the centering thing for me since i was a very young child and and so to be part of something that is developing content very directly um, or being right. connected to content very directly or visualizing that content in a way to me is, is very meaningful. And, and I guess I'm just a much more literal minded person, you know, architecture <laughs> was so much about abstraction, you know, you had these ideas, yeah. but they were always abstracted into like building form and program. And I just like being more connected to the content that I liked in a much more direct manner. And, uh, I think it's really that, that, connects me to it and and going back to some of that stuff in the 90s i you know i was always much more interested in the people that found this balance between expression and communication as opposed to obliterating communication which was kind of the right. thing back then and so a lot of these big designers whether it was like david carson or and his ilk i mean i i liked what they did from a strictly formal beauty place but it always bothered me that that they tended to think or at least visually, it tended to look like, you know, we don't care so much about the actual content or communication here. We just care about being expressive. And and, and mm -hmm. that side of me always was was irritated by that. Um, and I right, think it was right. and I think it was also coupled by I was lucky enough in school, I think about a year in to see Tibor Kalman talk. Um, oh, nice. And um, and he was talking about Colors Magazine at that point. And yeah. You know, it's hard to tell people or get them to understand how like how radical colors seemed in that moment, right? Right. right. Um, the way it went across, when it went about what it was doing, and um, you know, I remember Tibor made this comment in the in the lecture. He said, "You know, design is just a language. It's what you do with it that matters," and mm. that really stuck with me. And Mm -hmm. And it was it was coupled by the fact that I was sending this work back to my family who are very smart, creative people. That was this very 90s looking design and going like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> right. and I thought, yeah, yeah. Like, why? Why shouldn't design sort of aspire to be a little bit more widescreen in both in terms of the content that it tackles, but also the audiences that it that it goes after? And so that lecture really changed changed the way I looked at things. And I think moving forward, even though it still was a very expressive time and I'm still that kind of designer, I think at heart, there was always this other side of it. Like, wh who am I doing this for? You know, what is it about? 
you know, how is it moving the needle that that still sticks with me today. And I think it's always been that yeah. dynamic, that push and pull between a lot of the the kind of postmodernism stuff that I love expressively and then this kind of Tibor Kallman colors thing that has always been the kind right. of yin yang or tension in my work. You are also someone who is talking about, you know, content, talking about communication, talking about language, talking about reading. And you um I've done quite a bit of writing also. Where did the writing part come in for you that you could also be a, a writer, I guess, or write about these things in addition to just producing it? Yeah, I mean, I always joke that my my design writing career has really been by accident and going back <laughs> to that saying yes thing a lot. I mean, yeah. I think my interest in actually writing, I mean... I never had the confidence that I could write anything. And then I had a, a really amazing professor at Carnegie Mellon who taught in the humanities department, but would teach these history classes that wove art and culture into the historical continuum. And he would make us write these crazy essays like Dorothy Day and Margaret Atwood go for a walk or come to your house and, <laughs> and want to discuss their two books. You know, what's the dialogue between them and you and, Oh and, wow. And, um, and it was these very creative, prompts right that in a way that you could never sort of like steal an essay online and kind of submit right (laughs) i think that was part of it even though it was pre-internet and you know the the class was really engaging and i think he made us the last project was write a short story of your life and then have these two actually it was have dorothy day and margaret atwood discuss it and so i don't know i didn't i don't know how to write a story so i just sat down and i kind of wrote what was going on in my life and had connected it and then had them talk. And then I remember I went to, he made us come to his office to pick up the essay and I came in and he sat, he goes, Oh, Eric, Oh my God, sit down. And, and I said, okay. And I was really scared. Cause this guy was like this very diminutive, you know, older, you know, oh, yeah, Jew, yeah. Jewish man. And you know, I was Jewish too. So I, I, I have a, I know the type, but he was a little intimidating. And, um, and, uh, he sat me down and he just started asking me his questions like, tell me a little about your life. And so I started telling him and then he just he said that, you know, this essay that you wrote is amazing. And he's like, I don't know if anybody told you that you could write or the way you think, but you should really think about, you know, keep doing this, because I think that no matter what you end up doing, I think it'll serve you well. And it's amazing how one sort of piece of positive reinforcement can really set you on your way. And in architecture school back then, you got very little of it. So, um, and so, you know, what happened was, um, you know, I, I, you know, kept in touch with him until he um, died in the mid 90s. And then, you know, it, it never really crossed my mind to do it. I mean, I wrote essays at CCA and they were well received. And But I I think it was really two things. I, I took a class um, with the with the writer Pilar Villadas, who wrote for the New York Times for a long time. She was in San Francisco and she took a mm-hmm. she taught a class on in the architecture department about writing about architecture. And she really mm-hmm. sort of taught me a lot of the nuts and bolts and was also really encouraging. And then what happened was when I was applying for my ranked non-tenure teaching job, um, because the panel all knew me and knew my work, I decided instead of presenting the work, I would actually write like an essay presentation and talk about the things that are important to me as a designer and as a teacher. Oh, and, interesting. And yeah. I finished it. And Michael Vanderbilt was on the panel and he came up and he said, that was really awesome. You should send that to Rudy Vanderlands. And I was like, okay. And so I sent the essay to Rudy Vanderlands and he said, this is great. We're going to publish it in the next issue. And then I saw it as a badge of honor that in the following issue, Kenneth Fitzgerald totally went after me in his essay. (laughs) And I was like, all right, so maybe this, maybe I am onto something here. And so, you know, and then the chair of my department asked me to write something for the TDC. And then I met John Walters at a conference and he said, oh, you know, do you want to write something for I? And then the SF MoMA started their Mm -hmm. open space blog and they wanted a design person and somebody recommended me there. And that was really fun because I could write about anything I wanted, you know, through any, just through a design Mm -hmm. lens. And, and really it's just been this kind of, this, this sort of, uh, accident really. And, 
And you know, I'm 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 not a writer by trade. I'm, and it's tough to be a design critic when you're a design practitioner too. I think some people thread that mm-hmm. needle really well. Like Michael Beirut, I think is probably the best example. But mm-hmm. I tend to use the writing, I think, as when when I'm getting to like a boiling point and and something needs to be said. <laughs> like there's something that is bothering me so much that I feel right, like I have right. to say it. And um, so I think that's the reason that I don't write as regularly um and mm-hmm. i think also part of it too is that both the practice and especially my teaching lately have have sort of fulfilled a little bit more of the critical like, like i think yeah. the debate that you're probably having a lot i would think jared is um you know how much does design writing move the needle or is it better to be, (laughs) is it better to be actually, if you are a practitioner to be trying to move the needle in what you actually do. And I think this is a debate that I, that I have a lot with myself is like, where does writing practice Mm -hmm. fit into all this? Um, And is it, is Mm -hmm. it, is it doing, is it doing enough to push forward the ideas that are important to me or is it better for me to be doing it you know as a designer as a teacher and i think this is a debate i have a lot i'm i'm with you completely and i think that's why i kind of stumbled into teaching and realized that teaching was actually the thing that i enjoy the most out of all of this kind of you know these kind of activities uh because it fed that kind of critical side in a way that was stronger than actually just writing about it because you were discussing it with other people. You were kind of getting immediate feedback. They were bringing other ideas and it felt like it actually had some sort of impact instead of just, you know, writing a text and then kind of putting it out into the world. Um, You mentioned that you think it's hard to be a practitioner and a critic uh, and you had this professor when you were in, in architecture school, it's like, Hey, you should keep writing no matter what you do. This will, you know, this will benefit you in some way. Do, does writing, and we can kind of divorce that from criticism. Does writing have a place in your practice, you know, at volume, uh, that is kind of influencing the design in some way, or, or is that part of your process or, or part of the studio in some way? Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think that one of the things that I'm very proud of is, is, um, you know, whether it's making a pitch to a new client, whether it's talking about our work, you know, in a conference setting or in, or to students that come visit our studio, or even when presenting ideas for the work, I think that what I'm very proud of is that, a lot of people will say to me and say to us that, you know, I've never heard anybody talk about the work like you do before. Mm. And, um, and I think that comes from, and this is why I feel like the teaching and the practice and the writing are this kind of, if one of them were to completely drop out, I think we, I would, I, and the, and the practice would be lesser for it is that, um, you know, when you're in the classroom, you can't help but want to be a little bit idealistic about the potential of what <laughs> right. we do. Right. And yeah, so I that's think exactly that, right. Yeah. And I think that keeps you honest as a practitioner, as honest as you can be, you know, under the economic and, you know, what other the other factors that it takes to do design in what I would call, you know, a fairly traditional manner at this point, the way our mm-hmm. practice is. Um, you know, and I, I want to bring that that idealism and I also want to bring that um I don't know, kind of, it's less like Pollyanna-ish idealism, which we have too much of, I think, in the design world, and more just just mm-hmm. like this aspirational, poetic potential of what design can do. has always been something that I have believed in as much of a Gen X skeptic that I can be at the same time. I think I still believe in that a lot. And so I want the work to have that, that power and that, that, that depth and that richness. And I think that, um, you know, you know, clients still want to hear the business speak too. And I'm terrible at that. I admit it's my business partner that actually is really good at sort of bringing it down to earth and really talking about how it would work. And that's why I think we're a really good pair is because we complement each other well, Mm, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I really, that comes from, you know, me really thinking this stuff through, through writing. And maybe it's not something that appears more than maybe on our website or maybe in a blog post every once in a while 
on our website or a newsletter. But, um, you know, I, I really believe in, in that part of design and, and how much the ability to express that through writing and verbally and how important that is. And, um, I want people to know how important it is to me. And so you're, you're touching on something that I've been kind of struggling with lately and thinking about lately, because I think I can be, uh, a pretty big design skeptic and I can be, uh, kind of down on the industry and can complain a lot about how, <laughs> how we work and how we talk about ourselves and the kind of, kind of, uh, work that we do and, uh, can be really pessimistic about the future of, of graphic design. But when I am teaching is also when I am the most optimistic. And maybe that's that idealism that you're talking about where a lot of that skepticism and pessimism whether that is whether I am kind of consciously suppressing that or not, I'm not totally sure. I haven't thought about it this way before. Um, but I also present that kind of best, <laughs> best vision, that idealism. Um, d- do you not have that idealism in the practice? Is that something that's only in the classroom for you, or how do those start to talk to each other? Um, you know, I, I think that there's this idea that likes that idealism and skepticism can't live in the same world. I feel like skepticism Mm. and cynicism are very different or skepticism and pessimism are very different. I think skepticism (laughs) is healthy. I think it's this idea of how we make things better. You know, I think it's how we suss out, you know, the stuff that's bad or fake or whatever. And so I think for me, it's, it's, I'm like you, I go in the classroom and I get jazzed. I'm super idealistic yeah, about yeah. the potential. In some ways I'm often the cheerleader that's keeping students <laughs> right, out of right. their very cynical, you know, skeptical right, things. Right. But I also think that, you know, it's important to, um, you know, design to me is, is not just art, right? There's, there's right, constraints, right. there's audiences, there's context, there's, depending on how the scaling of it, there's ethics, there's, you know, there's a lot more things that go into it. And, and I want students to really be rigorous in their um, evaluation of their work. And I think that requires a degree of skepticism of, of being willing Mm -hmm. to really be your Mm -hmm. own worst critic and Mm -hmm. allow us as your peers to critique your work and, and push you along. And I think, I think this goes back to my architecture training too. I mean, when I got to design school, I was in California too. It was like, everybody is too nice. Like if you want to make the work better, <laughs> yeah. we have to start talking about this and a little bit more frankly. And, and, you know, I think that again, I'm sort of meeting in the middle here. I think that the way I was taught and, and when I was teaching early on, you know, I think it was too harsh to be, to be mm. totally honest, but I think there's a balance and um, and so I, I'm really looking for for students to be, you know, at the end of the day, I want them to be really critical thinkers first and foremost. And I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the making and the process and all that stuff is really important. And certainly I'm on them about that too, but I want them to be able to look at something and really kind of break it down and go, you know, this is what's working, this is what it isn't, or this is what isn't working for me and why, you know, what's the personal sort of lens that you're bringing to this? You know, why are you doing things Mm -hmm. a certain way? Why don't you respond to A, but respond to B? I mean, to me, it's, it's less about cynicism and pessimism and more about just a healthy skepticism of like, we can always make this better. You know, the only reason, the only reason we finish is because we have deadlines and we have to turn it in. Right. (laughs) Right. 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 I always think of that. Um, uh, was it, it was like Michelangelo pro- I probably, or like Da Vinci. I don't know if he, either of them really said this, but it's th- this idea that, uh, a painting is never finished, only abandoned. Um, and that's kind of how I think about all my work. It's like, oh, this stuff is just abandoned. Right. Yeah. Now. I mean, thank God for, thank God for deadlines. I mean, I have so many like self-starter yeah. projects I've never finished because I've never had the impetus to do so. I mean, it's funny how designers get so dependent on these, this sort of fr- the scaffolding in which we can sort of hang the work and get it done. I mean, that that's kind of what I wanted to, to 
ask you about because it kind of goes back a little bit to what you were saying earlier when you were a student and you were kind of caught between or interested in both sides of the kind of postmodern debate mm-hmm. in you know the the the, the Tibor idea that this can be expressive but it also has to kind of serve this purpose mm-hmm. and something that i think about a lot as a teacher and i see this in my students also is the intersection or the balance between expression point of view what the student or you know we don't even have to limit this to students i guess the designer brings the kind of personal narrative the designer brings with the uh thing that it needs to serve and so when i kind of present to my students a more experimental or weird or uh you know kind of strange project you know, there's always like a couple of students just like, how's this going to help me get a job? Can I put this in my portfolio? Right. How am I going to, how am I going to present this? And I, I totally get that, you know, they're spending a lot of money to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess, I guess the question that I'm trying to ask is what is the gap or how do we close the gap if there is one between education and practice and you know you're someone where all of your professors you said were practitioners also you have now been doing that do you see some sort of gap there at all um i do i mean i and i and it's i don't want to be i don't i don't want to um sort of imply that i'm the sort of ideal model of this but i think what's happened right. since i was a student is that you've what I would call the sort of MFA design grad has become much more prevalent. And I think Mm. the MFA grad is also often a teacher um, and they often go straight into teaching. And, and so Mm -hmm. I think I'm of two. (laughs) Yes. You're talking about me. You're exactly talking about me. (laughs) Which is fine. What I want to say is that I think that there's something very exciting to me about graphic design, especially becoming or, or managing to to establish itself as more as of an academic sort of pursuit mm. as much as a kind of applied mm-hmm. art practice. Like I think it can only benefit us that there are more people sort of shielded by academia to do research or do experimental work to unearth mm. things that might, you know, yield um, something more exciting out in the world that maybe the usual design practice might not. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I think and the idea of somebody going to design school just to be a critic of design mm-hmm. is exciting to me too. I think that can only be helpful, but there's also this side of me and it goes, and actually it was a sort of a, an anxiety I had in that article I wrote for Emigre that was my thing to get my teaching job. I worry that if we sort of turn in too much on ourselves and start to just do yeah. work that is just pitched at our peers and other designers mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. It, 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 it risks being going the worst that could happen was that it becomes like like a printmaking or a fine art discipline that becomes this <laughs> arcane kind of thing that only a certain amount of people do and understand and it stays there and um and that's a right. very extreme view of it but what i don't know if you're experiencing this where you teach but you know we haven't uh, an IXD interaction department now. Um, Mm. and it's being run or was run or started by somebody who was high up at ID, IDO. And, um, and, you know, sometimes I've sat in on their crits and, and they are really sort of focused on like, how does this thing function in context? How does it, what does it do for people? And I think students, not only people in the world, but students are like really engaged by this idea that my work could have an effect out in the world. And I feel if graphic design twiddles its thumbs a little bit with the same old sort of poster contest, you know, I, exactly. I, I get a little worried. And so, you know, I, I tell students that, that, you know, graphic design is both this nexus and void right now. It's a nexus in the sense that mm. so many things feed into it right now. But if mm-hmm. we're not careful, if we don't sort of own what we do a little bit more and acknowledge that there are all these things converging on us and talk to them, it's going to become a void in the sense that architecture is going to take the little bit that they can do and interaction design is going to take the little right. bit that they can do and industrial design. And, and so I, I still right. think what we do is really important. And I still think it's important to push people to be 
experimental. You're in school to suspend time to allow you to find your voice and find what it is you want to do. Um, but at the same time, I'm always very coaching the fact that like I want them to think about context and who it's for because I think mm-hmm. fundamentally that's still a part of what we do. Um, I also think too that you know when you're in an art school like CCA, that casts a big shadow. And I think that this idea mm-hmm. of being an artist and always making it new becomes also, I think, a pressure on the students. And so yeah. what I often yeah. tell the students is like, you know, don't worry about making it new. Worry about making it true to what you're trying to design, appropriate mm-hmm. to what you're trying to design. Try to make it yours. Try to put a little bit of yourself in there. And then I think mm-hmm. if you do that, it might be new, but don't get hung up so much on making it quote unquote new. Don't get hung up on trying to develop a style that is all yours. Really focus on those things. And maybe that new part will, will spring organically out of that instead. That is so well said. I've, I, I have a couple questions to kind of begin to, to wrap this up and I'm not, I'm not totally sure why I'm thinking about this maybe you know i lived in san francisco for a while i left five years ago so i I, sorry to bring it back to san francisco again Uh, but i i think there's something interesting about you and about volume in being a a studio that's now what 20 years old uh, (laughs) in, in san francisco and i remember when i lived in san francisco there were there were like tons of medium posts at the time that shows you like the era um about how the tech companies were kind of stealing all the studios and graphic design was being subsumed by product design um and I would love to just kind of hear your thoughts on someone who, you know, like we started, opened a studio kind of at the end of a, a dot-com bubble. What that's like now, how you've kind of navigated that. Do you kind of have um, thoughts on that? And then, you know, maybe secondarily, and this might get too complicated, but I, you know, have a lot of students who, when you kind of ask them what kind of jobs they want, they say, we, you know, product design, we want to work at Google, um, want to work at Apple. Uh, what's that like kind of being in the the belly of that world and kind of retaining that independence that you've been able to do? Yeah, I mean, you've touched on something that has been on my mind for a long time as a teacher, as a practitioner. I mean, I think that San Francisco is such a strange place. And I used to think that it was an outlier in terms of, in, in respect to design and design practice. And, and my biggest anxiety is actually, it's the canary in the coal mine in the sense that, um, mm. I mean, in the sense that well, the first thing is that I think your suspicions are right, is that I do feel that the, the amount of design studios that were so, you know, there were so many of them. It seemed like the only mm-hmm. places you could go to work when you got out of school when I graduated feel like an endangered species right now. And I think yeah. part of it is economics. I think the economics of being in San Francisco, trying to mm-hmm. sort of support a staff who can go to Slack and get paid like $120,000 out of school. Um, I mean, that that's hard to compete with. The second thing mm-hmm. is that students are coming out of school with a lot of debt. So it's like, am right. I going to work at a small studio where I can barely get by in San Francisco or am I going to pay off my loans and go work for a, a Facebook or a Google or, you know, whatever. Um, and then I also think, too, that a lot of the things that I think I and some of my peers held dear about design are maybe not the things that these students hold dear, um, which is, I think, a more of a formalism, you know, more of a, um, for lack of a better description, a a kind of analog view of the world. Um, I think that students do get excited about this idea of like, yeah, maybe I'm only designing a button, but it's a button that billions of people are going to see, right? Or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can go work at a place that gives me like my, all my meals paid for. And it's just like playground for the young, you know, I, I understand the appeal. And so, um, 
you know, it has been a lot harder to make the case for a what I do and both in the classroom and um, as a business. That being said, um, I've always felt like our idiosyncratic both, I think, point of view and the and the kind of work that we do um, is a great filter to attract the right people. And so even though I don't think we've been the most financially successful business um, or um, always attracted maybe the sort of star students, right? Like, especially now, um, we get a lot of really great people and a lot of really great clients because I think the people who under, who can connect the dots of what we do right. in, this, in this sort of climate um, really want to be a part of it. And as, as much of a struggle as it's been, sometimes to just practically keep the business open and let's just say that this time is not doing us any favors um i'm i'm really proud instinctively proud of of what we've managed to maintain and i think a lot of us who are in these smaller studios whether it's like tom crabtree at manual or you know brett at moniker or you know my old boss dennis at vehicle or i'm trying to think of some of the other ones or todd foreman my friend at public you know we're we're kind of this little band of outsiders which you know i i'm i'm glad that we're still around and and it'll be interesting to see when you know where this kind of seesaw roller coaster thing ends you know i hope that it's a rejuvenation of this kind of model rather than its last last gasp but in terms of students you know it's funny i think I don't know about you, but I am just as surprised as anybody how much the students are into like letterpress and risograph and yeah. all these sort of, yeah. you know, what I call it the art book fair crowd, you know, and, and how yeah. much that yeah. stuff is, is, you know, important to them. And, and half of me is just like, oh my God, we're like sending them into the, it's like sending them into the, into war without weapons or something. And then, and then at the same time, I, I'm glad that this whole sort of what I would call resistance graphic design has erupted in these places like art book fairs where there are these little, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are these little, um, you know, poc- like like a like a punk rock zine was when I was a kid. You know, it's yeah, like these little yeah. pockets of resistance that um, that remind us of some of the things that are important to us, whether it's culture or working with your hands or just being a human being, you know, and I think that some things that have been really big for me you know, I teach this TBD class, which right. is basically a um, studio of students that does work for real nonprofits. And one of the things that has very much sort of made me realize is that um, I think I'm one of those people that's really about the quality of the interaction as opposed to the quantity. And what I mean by that is, you know, we celebrate, you know, Uber and Lyft for like creating these design and then these designers for creating something that millions of people sort of use. But I'm like, yeah, but it's millions of people that it's just a transaction. It's not that important at the end of the day. Whereas, right. Or like lecturing at a big Ted conference, you know what I mean? In front of like thousands of people you'll never meet. Right. For me being in the classroom and having these one-on-one interactions you yep. know, doing work for people that maybe it's a small nonprofit, but God, they need it so much. And it'll mean so much to the people that they're serving, even if it's only 500 people per se, or even less, you know, I, I really think designers need to shift their mindset a little bit to the quality of the interactions that they're creating and not just this that. idea of scale being the most important meter. And so you know, I think that it would be nice to see conferences acknowledge something between the sort of big in-house Uber designers that show the new rebrand and then the kind of one kind of iconoclast mm. single practitioner that just does stuff for their self. You know, it would be nice to acknowledge this sort of middle ground where I think a lot of us are operating and doing really amazing stuff, but doesn't fit that sort of mold that 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 yeah. that we think attracts people. And so I'm okay working toiling in obscurity because I I really feel confident about the importance and the effect of what I'm yeah. doing. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right and I I I have two kind of uh separate thoughts on that that are completely related. It, it co- connects back to what we're talking about with kind of writing and teaching and where where I find the classroom so much more valuable is instead of an essay that might be read by, you know, 
however many hundreds of people or whatever versus 12 students to talk about these ideas. It's, it's actually about the quality of the interactions versus the quantity of eyeballs on the essay. Um, and so I, I, I totally get that. And, um, I, something else I've been thinking about lately that I think you've articulated so well is so many of these, uh, like design conferences and design events are only hitting, I guess this is becoming a theme of the podcast of like the in-betweens or the intersections between the extremes, the big agencies or studios or tech companies who are, you know, doing these rebrands or these massive products, or it's the solo designer who's showing their work. And, and, and there's this whole middle uh, that's, that's lost in some way. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I think that the other thing that's interesting too is um, I the weird the weird thing about my teaching practice right now. It's it's really kind of been a not that my teaching was going bad, but it's really been a great rejuvenation. Is that a year ago, John Sueda, who who runs the MFA mm-hmm. design program here, um, said, "Hey, do you want to teach a seminar on design criticism?" And mm-hmm. I've never taught a seminar before, and I was. I've always wanted to, but it's always been a little scary. You know, I'm not a scholar. I don't even have an MFA. I don't, you know, I'm not a quote unquote, you know, the normal seminar teacher. And what's even more interesting about this class is you have this skew of that. There are a lot of students from all over the world where English is not their first language. They have a lot of different cultural differences compounded by the fact that it's graphic designers, industrial designers, and interaction designers and everybody in between. And so, um, and so as a, as a teacher, I really have to figure out sort of what is that, what is that middle ground that, that I can establish, you know, as a, as a, as a teacher to get these dialogues going. And so I just went in and said, okay, you know, I was asking people like, how do you do this? Oh, I give them the water, you know, Benjamin uh, essay and the Roland Bard yeah, essay. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, I could do that. But you know, what's going to feel relevant to them and, and what's going to really kind of move the needle in a way that is not just the same lecture that you would give maybe at a conference or, or in a, in a, in a more traditional seminar. And so, you know, what I've been doing is just kind of seeding these readings and then assigning two people, um, everybody has to read them, but two people have to lead the discussion on them and they have to contribute two articles of their own to contribute to the Mm. discussion. So, I said, I, you know, to me, teaching is really about exchange now. It's not this master apprentice thing that I think it was in the earlier days when it yeah. was more about craft. And so, um, and I have to say, Jared, I mean, like we're talking here, I can keep a discussion going, I think, but it just blew my mind, like how much yeah. they just came out of their shells and were really into this. And I have never gotten the good reviews that I've gotten from this class. You know, and, oh wow! I mean, I get pretty good reviews usually, but these were just sort of like, <laughs> this is the most important class I had this semester. I never thought about design this way, and it's just sort of like, wow! And uh-huh. and I think that if those thirty students that I've had over the last two semesters go out and take this stuff, and it really informs their practice um, in a way that might move the needle in ways that I could never have the strength for, or yeah. Yeah. or imagine, man, that would be great. You know, and that to me is yeah. more important. And it'd be just nice to hear these smaller stories about uh-huh. rather than these, you know, big epic sort of, you know, success stories that, I mean, look, this is the way the world works. I'm not pretending that it's going to change, but I think this is the reason I've always kind of stayed in this realm of the one to one rather than to one to 500,000 because I just, it feels more meaningful. It feels like it has a bigger effect. It feels like the quality of what we're doing is better. And, um, Uh and so, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, design, I always go back to that sort of that, I think it's a quote from Socrates where it's about, you know, we shouldn't always or never listen to the dictates of popular opinion. We should instead prioritize listening to the the dictates of reason. Right. And I think that Mm -hmm. everybody's reasoning is different, but I'm okay with doing the stuff that maybe isn't popular for lack of a better description. I just want to do the stuff that feels (laughs) right. 
and meaningful. Right. Yeah. I I love that, and that's like a great way to uh, to kind of wrap up this whole conversation. I have one more question mm-hmm. that I don't mean to put you on the spot. That's okay. Because um, I usually the last question is usually what are you reading right. right now, which I would like to hear what you're reading, but I I want to give a, a part two of that question and. Are there any articles from that class that you were just talking about that you want to share with me and with the listeners? Because that class sounds amazing, and I would love to know what else uh, students were reading. You know, it's interesting. It's it's not so much the articles are so new or anything. I think for mm-hmm. me, what's fascinating about it is seeding articles that we've known for so long into a classroom where the cultural background is, is, and then the experience is so different. Right, so yeah. like, you know, the way that I sort of teach that class is it's about sort of, you know, uh, these sort of concentric lenses, which go, it's like form process, function, context, ethics, speculation is how I kind of do it. And so, um, you know, in the form one, I just give them, I literally give them the crystal goblet and, under nice. the surface of style, um, which was a oh, yeah. I article that Blovelt wrote that I thought really encapsulated, you know, how form changed in the postmodern era. And, you know, it's fascinating to hear them sort of because those are really graphic design articles, but it's fascinating to hear yeah. how the industrial design students or IXD students um sort of sort of wrap their heads around that, right? And it, it's it's fat it's actually quite fascinating because you know, thinking about the crystal goblet in the context of designing digital interfaces is actually really interesting, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so for me, it's less about the, the content being so new and different and more how we frame it. And, um, right. And so I'm more than happy to send some, you know, I, I made them watch the Dieter Rams documentary because I think oh, there's yeah. a lot yeah. in there. Um, there's that, speculative everything book that I had them read a section from. Um, You know, I I don't, I'm not trying to get it to, oh, I make them, you know, we do a whole thing on uh, design thinking. And so I make them read the IDEO thing and then I make them watch the Natasha Jen videos. And then I make them read the the Koi Vin response that he wrote on his blog. I mean, I I think for me too, it's important, you know, writing for me and and the writing that I like to read is to me, it's more about writers that can anecdotally um, talk about how design fits into everyday life and and the experience of it. I think it was Alice Twemlow that said something about if design criticism really wants to you know, be noticed, it really needs to talk about how design intersects with everyday life and the everyday world. And I think she's really right about that. And so I'm drawn to writers and readings that do more of that than get instead maybe into more about the design process of how someone made things or really sort of dense theory. I, I think it's I think pe- I give people bibliographies to say, like, if you want to read more about this idea, here's this death of the author mm-hmm. essay that you can read, <laughs> but, you know, don't feel pressure to. And actually some do and, and bring it in and want to talk about it. But um, to yeah. me, it's always about I'm just one of those people that, you know, I, I want to create work. I want to write things. I want to talk about design in the context of people that normally right. don't get it. I mean, and, and, and the work that I'm most proud of in volume has been the stuff that has broken through that sort of what I'll call the, the design for design sake rind right, for lack of right, a better description. Right. And so, um, so, you know, a lot of the reading and a lot of the writing I do is, is, you know, I, I kind of want it to, to speak to, um, you know, design as something operating out in the world, doing something, not yep. just the artistic formal quality of it in a vacuum. That's my super long answer to like, what are you teaching in that class? <laughs> okay. yeah. So, so then, so then yeah. quickly, mm-hmm. what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? Well, what I'm reading right in the immediate is it's funny. I, I saw your newsletter and, um, about the ways of seeing and, and that is a book that I read a couple oh, yeah. of times and I thought you know what I'm gonna pick that up again because I I actually remember that book being very really 
great. And I'm, you know, halfway through it right now. And I am, I'm, I enjoyed the, the first essay so far, especially because I feel like it dials into yeah. a lot of what I'm talking about here, which is not yeah. to ghettoize the discussion of, of art in this sort of, you know, academic yeah. sort of vacuum and instead really kind of bring it out and really talk about how, you know, real people respond to it. What was the historical context? You know, I, I think that that was nice to hear from him. And then, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of those books that like, you know, everybody recommends that book, but how many people have actually read it in right. the last couple of years? And, yeah. and when I read it, I was like, this is still so relevant. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that you liked it. I'm glad you picked it up again. Yeah, too. I, no. I've done my job. And then, you know, I, I'm a big, I, I read a lot of fiction. I just feel like it's important for designers to read mm -hmm. fiction because I think it's, um, you know, again, going back to the idea of questioning and design is questioning i think that fiction is this kind of thing that can really sort of put a mirror to you and make yeah. you sort of so right now i'm reading this book that actually is it, it's got a lot of hype but i actually have to say it's pretty great and very relevant to this time it's called my year of rest and relaxation by oh, uh, tessa Mosba. I, I literally just finished reading that last oh really week. so i'm not done yeah, yet i so, loved it yeah but okay. i i think it's i think it's really great and i think it's um it raises so many issues to me about, I mean, it's such a brilliant conception yeah. of using this person that is just like off or rocker and like not no filter. And yeah. it really digs into these things around like taste and, and money and I don't know, everything, yeah. you know, about the way we live and this, the superficiality of what we, it's the airs so that we put on, right. As design, as people, yeah. as well as designers. And this is the time to be thinking about that stuff and then you know i'm rereading um jessica helfand's design the invention of desire book too because oh. that book just bowled me over the first time i was just so i i finished it and i was like man this is the book that i should have written that i couldn't have written because i can't write <laughs> as good as her um <laughs> but i, I like that she was sort of starting to back up a little bit and really start to call designers to the yeah. mat around things around ethics yeah. and stuff like that and i think it's a a good thing to be reading now too and then um you know and then i i actually started this informal book club we're all trying to barrel through dostoyevsky's the brothers karamazov and oh let's just say that's been i'm a russian lit guy but this one is a <laughs> doozer to say the least but um <laughs> but you know this is the time to read the big books i've had it on my shelf for like yeah, years yeah. it's a thousand pages i'm like let's do it and so what i do is i read 200 pages of it and then i do something else and then i come back to it and, but um well we should we should um after after we stop this recording let's talk about that a little bit because yeah. i have some questions yeah. about russian literature but, <laughs> yeah well but you know i i also think too it just it would be good to add too that there are just some books that i go back to a lot that i give to a lot of people and i think that um and that are feeling very relevant now too i think is um you interviewed uh, Natalia Elian, I think, on your show. Oh, yeah. I haven't listened to that one yet because mm -hmm. you have so many due to the backlog. It's impossible <laughs> to get through. Um, That's why I dropped two in every other week's yeah. schedule because <laughs> everyone yeah. was telling me You're, that. Um, but I, I thought her chasing the perfect book was lit – that literally is yeah. like my number one sort of – because the reason I want to bring that up is because – and it's I think it's a good place to end is because – I think design is in this really exciting place, right? Like I'm super excited about um, the currency it has. I'm super excited about things like the letter form archive and all this interest in history and, 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 you know, trying to build this almost like, you know, Ale Alexandria library of design, I think is important, <laughs> but I also think mm -hmm. it, it, it masks this anxiety that we have as designers for a time when we still had, control yeah. over things in a way that we don't anymore in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. And I think that book, you know, and by tackling that sort of aspect of modernism really tapped into, into something about design and designers that I think we need to confront and consider a lot more. And, um, mm -hmm. I just felt like she, she, she did it in such an accessible and, succinct and poetic way that I find myself rereading that book a lot just to remind myself, like, let go of some of the stuff that we're, I'm holding on to, let go of the OCD, let go, you know? 
Yeah. And, uh, and really, and that's one of those, that's one of those I need to reread now that you say that that's been, it's been a while since I've read And you that. could read it in an hour. I mean, it's so short. It's so great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that that book to me is, is very, is very meaningful. And I mean, we, I could talk about this for another episode. I have so many like that, but that one is the one that I find myself pushing on people a lot more. And it's funny because a lot of people will come back to me and go like, God, I hated that book. And I think, cause I think it touches oh. a nerve with people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it goes into things like taste and control and those things that we as designers hold dear that that i really question sometimes eric i think we should do this again sometime and just do a whole podcast talking about books (laughs) because we could we could easily go go on for another hour anytime maybe we can do like this sort of team up between like the the books of some substance podcast that i'm sometimes on and the and the and the scratching the surface thing So that yeah, would we'll be do fun. a we'll do a crossover a collaboration. I yeah, think that's great. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh yeah, thank this you was, for this having was me. Such a great conversation. Oh yeah, it was super fun, man. And I love what you're doing. And and uh, you know, it's 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 really impressive what you've created in in really such a short time. So mm. you know, keep it up. Oh, thanks. That's all I gotta say. This episode was recorded on April 23rd, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.